Welcome to Two Halves Make a Whole. I'm Mike Cherney. And I'm Aaron Blumenthal. And we are here to try to give you some possibly unsound financial advice occasionally and, you know, just try to give you a little bit more insight into what's going on. And this week, we wanted to cover the Coinbase IPO. Yeah, there has been a lot going on. So since we first talked about uh, cryptocurrencies and, and crypto as a concept, if you will, there's been a bunch of movement, particularly a lot last night. Yes, and over the last week. Exactly, yeah. So first and foremost, last night, there was, I think it was a 20, 20% decrease in the in the uh, cryptocurrency uh, like value. The whole market basically yeah. tanked. And it started with a giant sale of Bitcoin that then dragged the rest of the market with it. Now... Not going to say we know everything that happened with it or why it happened, but there was definitely some profit taking that occurred after the euphoria streak we had over the last week with the Coinbase IPO. And for anyone who's not familiar with Coinbase, they are a giant, uh, effectively a centralized, which is kind of ironic in the crypto space, but they're a centralized trading platform for cryptocurrencies. So if you think you have like a TD Ameritrade or a Schwab account, they're basically the same thing, but for cryptos instead of stocks. Yeah. So one of the interesting things to think about when that came out is also other goings on at the same time. So this past week, Janet Yellen, who is now the uh, secretary of the treasury, she went over to one of the feds. I honestly don't remember which one. And she, and she gave a speech and it's, it's very interesting. It's watch the whole thing if you if you have time. One of the things though that she that she pointed out, um, among other things, was that there there is an issue with some of the ways in which cryptocurrencies may be used, and that and how that perception will or will not affect its regulation going forward. Um, the way she actually articulated this in the whole, if you listen to the whole thing, was pretty nuanced. But the way that it came out and the way CNBC and Kramer and everybody made it seem is that she's saying, oh, it's used for illicit, illicit activity mainly. And that's not, and that's not the case. But, it's, but perception, unfortunately, as we've talked about, is a lot of... Reality. Yeah. And she has said things very similar to that in the past, saying Bitcoin is not a real asset. Bitcoin is never going to replace fiat currencies. Bitcoin is not a real investment class at all. There's been a lot of naysaying on the Bitcoin front, and she's not the only one either. You, we've had tons of big name CEOs and influential people like Mark Cuban, uh, the I forget the guy's name, but the BlackRock oh, CEO. Uh, oh, uh, no. There, well, not... Ray Dalio as well. And Ray Dalio is Bridgewater, not... Bl I know... <coughs> yes, the guy from Black, uh, BlackRock, who I cannot remember his name right now. But point being, yes. <laughs> they have been big naysayers in Bitcoin for many years. And the interesting thing that I've started to notice, and maybe this is something and maybe it's not, but every time these guys say Bitcoin is terrible or not a real asset class or cryptocurrency, I guess, in general, you have a huge dip. Well, I shouldn't say huge. You have a quick dip in cryptos, especially the ones that they're talking about specifically. So say Bitcoin, it'll lose five to 10%, but then it immediately rises and then pushes against the grain, so to speak, on all these things and all these naysayers. 
And the flip side is recently all these same guys have been saying Bitcoin's terrible, Bitcoin's terrible. It's not a real asset class, not an investment, not this, not that. Now they're all saying it's like the greatest thing ever. Cubans accepting Dogecoin, which is literally a joke coin for NBA tickets. Um, but once these guys start typically saying that everything's great and that they should start investing in these uh, in cryptos because they make great asset classes, the first thing I always see is those cryptos dump hard. And that is yeah. no change from what happened last night because uh, – Friday, I think it was Friday, was the BlackRock CEO was saying, like, Bitcoin is, like, the next thing, like, going to be a great asset class. We got to invest in it. And the very next day, Bitcoin dumps 20%. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back really quick because the, the thing that I thought was interesting is the, the comment that Janet Yellen made um, was to the extent it is used, I fear it's uh, about Bitcoin. To the extent it is used, uh, I fear it's often for illicit finance. That's what got clipped. The second, the next part that she said, though, is actually all, is interesting. It's something that I think we should also look at is it's an extremely inefficient way of conducting transactions. And the amount of energy that's consumed in processing those transactions is staggering. She then went on to, to reference um, previous rushes. Uh, she talked about tulip mania and a couple other things. Um, which tulip mania is something we should definitely talk about in the future, totally separate. But it's interesting that she talks about it's an ineffective method of, of doing trading, right? Of trading for good. So, so something we kind of talked about before in a previous episode was, was look at how you buy things, right? Fiat currency replaces barter, essentially. When you don't 100% know what the value of what you're using to trade is due to the volatility within the market itself, that, in essence, underlies a huge issue, right? This is, I am by, I want to make, I want to make this very clear. I'm not comparing us to the Weimar Republic in Germany, but one of the, one of the hallmarks of highly volatile currencies is one day you don't, you, you can buy a, you know, a loaf of bread with the amount of money you have. The next it barely buys, you know, a slice of bread. Exactly. So it's like that's the issue that that she brings up, and that, and to that end, that's actually a valid point. I'm not saying it's. I, I'm by no means saying that that cryptocurrencies are worthless, but there is something to be said, and this has been also said by some of the more bullish traders on, or and bullish people on on crypto is that the volatility sort of underlies some of that traditional stability but once again it's an up-and-coming you know asset class you kind of expect that right you know the, the wildcat days of oil wells you didn't expect oil to always be you know 130 dollars you know a barrel or then it would go down and up you know oil's actually pretty volatile and that's all and that's a, considered a more stable asset yeah the funny thing though is what we're seeing with Bitcoin is the exact opposite of the I can't buy that loaf of bread anymore because yeah. now we are comparing to the U.S. dollar. And this is where things get really interesting and where yeah. crypto starts to get interesting and how you look at what value or what your benchmark is starts to dictate what the values of things are. Mm -hmm. And when we covered that crypto episode for episode two... Bitcoin just crossed $20,000 and now it took a big breather from $65,000 to 
dipped to $51,000 very briefly, was very quickly purchased right back up, and is sitting about $56,000 right now, which is still more than two and a half times what it was in December when we first yeah, covered well, yeah, it. Yeah, it was, I think it was December. So we're talking against the U.S. dollar, right? For every dollar you had in Bitcoin, you now have $2.75 instead of that $1. So you could buy two and three quarters loaves of bread for the same money now having Bitcoin. So while it is volatile, it's in a very, currently in a very, very bullish manner. And there's a lot of really positive things going for it. That the, the user base is one of them, right? Things are only as valuable as people perceive them to be, right? And you can look at used cars right now. They're extremely expensive because you can't buy new cars. So because that demand goes up and the supply is fixed or decreasing, Bitcoin supply is decreasing, but the demand keeps rising. Therefore, against the dollar as a benchmark, the value of Bitcoin rises. Yeah. With that, though, the, one of the third thing that she that Janet Yellen obliquely touched on that I that I actually think is is interesting. Um, and I don't, I don't even have like a, a fully formed understanding of this part yet. The, we talked about how Bitcoin is mined, right? And the amount of energy it takes to mine Bitcoin, uh, like physical through, you know, through the wires that you see next to highways, it's actually a lot of power. Like, it's a, a lot of power. Yeah, it's a lot of power. And as we become a more interesting diversified energy economy. I wonder how that's going to play out. I think there's a couple things there. Yeah. And it's funny because we kind of already took a tangent off the Coinbase IP. Yeah. But it all, <laughs> it all leads into it, right? And yeah. why, why it's so highly valued. But crypto isn't fixed either, right? Mm -hmm. These aren't just some nebulous items. These aren't some nebulous tokens, internet money, funny money. Some of them... I won't lie, like Dogecoin are. Yeah. Um, it, it really has no real use case. Uh, but when you're looking at things like Ethereum, Ethereum is a way to monetize the internet. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of value in that, right? Like Google, worth more than a trillion dollars because they monetize the internet advertising space. So if you can monetize every internet transaction, just think of what Amazon is able to generate off of things through their website not the entire internet. So you're figuring every little transaction going on is all played over the Ethereum network, almost, in crypto space. So yes. <laughs> a huge amount of money traveling through there. And while, yes, it was highly inefficient, just like printing currencies, right? Yeah. Like every evolution of money has been inefficient. At its offset. Right. Yeah. Bartering, right? Someone has to have some value of something. And one thing might be more valuable to someone else. If we look at, <laughs> we really want to go to a history lesson here. I don't know. I'll do one for you. Oh my God, go for uh, it. <laughs> why is it called a salary? Oh yeah, it's, uh, go for it. It's salt. It's salt. Yep. The Roman soldiers were paid in salt because salt was extremely valuable. And in Latin, sal is salt, salary. So you were paid in salt. You weren't paid in money because salt was worth money. So you had a form of currency and like anything, right? Even black pepper used to be worth an enormous amount of money because you couldn't get it anywhere. 
all these spices, the whole spice trail, the Silk Road, like the real one, not the internet illicit trading one. <laughs> but, I mean, also probably had, too. Yeah, yeah, but also that one too. We had a lot of very valuable things to certain people uh, that could replace money on some level. And so you would trade or you'd barter, but it was inefficient. Then you had paper money getting printed, but there was no credit card or electronic transfer of money. And can you imagine having to, if you want to send money, to someone else in a different country, like this is where Western Union comes in, right? Like you're literally mailing money uh, overseas. That's inefficient. You got to put it on a plane, you got to put it on a car, you got to do whatever with it. You're using paper to wrap it up in an envelope, you got to pay for a stamp, you got to pay for the transaction, the certification. It's slow, it's expensive, it's, I guess, somewhat risky, Not maybe not as much because you have that company standing behind it, but if you were to literally just take a wad of cash, stick it in an envelope, give it to the post office, so you only had to pay 55 cents and mailed that wad of cash overseas, it might never get to where you're going or to where you want it to go. That's also really inefficient and really risky. Once you get into the crypto space, or I guess we'll take one more, one more tangent as we move up from there, stocks. Buying stocks back in the day, you had to transact cash for capital stock certificates. And those could be damaged, lost, burned, etc. And so you potentially could lose that. And so you had a very inefficient transition or transaction of those stocks, and those had to be physically shipped somewhere else, which also took energy, time, money, etc. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now we're in the crypto space, and what's really interesting is so when you first started trading Bitcoin, it was a very long time before a transaction would clear, more than 30 minutes for any transaction, even moving from one of your wallets to the other wallet for the blockchain to register, yep, it has moved, the network agrees, you're good to go. It's gotten faster and faster and faster. So now you buy Bitcoin or any current, actually almost any cryptocurrency on any of the decentralized exchanges or centralized exchanges, that transaction happens within seconds. And there's yeah. massive amounts of volume flowing through there. So it's gotten exceedingly more efficient than it used to be, even though it's still very energy inefficient to be mining new coins. But because they're not just some nebulous, no-use token of internet funny money, for the most part, uh, the real ones like Ethereum, like Bitcoin, uh, they're getting more and more efficient. So they're putting new technology, new code. Um, there's all these improvement plans to Ethereum that are going through to make it more scalable, more efficient, lower cost, more energy efficient, so that we don't stay in this, like, horribly brute force, high energy, mad greenhouse gas and heat emitter to run these server farms to mine Bitcoin. Yeah. I, that brings up a couple interesting points, actually, which is the diffuseness of sort of like the locale or the, you know, the centrality of where the, you know, essentially Bitcoin comes from kind of provides a more democratizing agent to uh, agency to the to the whole of it right so if you look at quantitative easing what like what was that that was literally just you know the the fed the federal reserve saying like in order to you know make sure that we keep inflation rates or you know the you know rates here in order to make sure the economy works we're literally going to start printing money the way that this works is it's more diffuse so it's not a central bank it's the individuals going out and doing it, which, which is pretty interesting because now that brings us back to the 1840s and 1850s. I, I, and I'm actually kind of serious here because if you think about it, 1849, 
49ers, right? I'm from the Midwest, so I'm going to say a garbage football team, although in the 90s, I, I really did love them. So, but separate story. But the 1840s and the, in the, uh, in the 1850s in California, people would go, would go to a mint that was not regulated by the United States and basically get it their, you know, whatever gold they had minted into either, you know, bars or into coinage. So in, in San Francisco, go figure, there were, there were numerous types of coins floating around in the 1850s, which is an interesting parallel. And I wonder how history is going to either repeat itself or not, right? Because that's another way of looking at this. Um, go back a little bit further. So 1600s in the Caribbean, the... The reason the dollar sign looks the way it does with an S with two with two pillars through it is because actually look at the Spanish, the Spanish dollar, right? What the uh, what Spain would, was using, and it has the royal symbol of Spain on there, which is a banner wrapped around two columns on the flag. That's where that comes from because the Spanish dollar was actually the you know currency du jour. Um, or no, de facto. Sorry, de facto, not the the jour currency of the uh, of the Caribbean and, and and this area and this part of the world, this hemisphere. So it's one of those. That's another interesting parallel. That's you know we people in even the British colonies that were out here would often use and accept dollars. Not necessarily British pound sterling, but it was actually those dollars that are Spanish that they accepted. So I wonder if there's going to be. I'm not suggesting there's going to be a new age of piracy because that would also be awesome for all the songs that would come out of it. Well, there actually is a new Ooh. age of piracy in crypto. You can get, um, when you're trying to run a transaction fee, so this this has been a whole thing with Ethereum lately. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. So the miners have been pushing up gas fees. So all these fees that are happening on the Ethereum network as you're doing any type of transaction Say I'm swapping one crypto for another on a decentralized exchange, I have to pay the miner gas fee in order to make that transaction happen. And a few days ago, which is why I thought actually Ethereum was going to go to the moon, relatively speaking, was that the gas fees were at a real like all-time high. So it was either going to tank down or it was going to balloon up. And they're about $300 a transaction during the day to trade any crypto, which squeezes out all the little guys because anybody who wants to not, you know, trade $10,000 worth of uh, coins. If you're, if you're looking at a $1,000 transaction, you're paying a 30% fee to the miner, which means you now need to recover almost 50% of your transactions at $700 now, right? In order to get back to a point where you can then transact back out again, you have to make another 300 on the back end of that. So you're paying $600 on your $1,000 transaction back and forth you need to make a lot of money. Like you have to bet that your thing is going to be big or you're going to be likely out that full thousand dollars. Yeah. And, and while these fees are going on, right, there's a bidding war happening between different miners and then there's people that are using robots effectively to find out what those fees are and they will slot in right ahead of you and screw up your transaction. And if your transaction doesn't go through, but it attempted to, the Ethereum that you use to pay those gas fees is burned. And you've lost that money. So there is some piracy. They can either snake the transaction from you and then resell it to you at a different rate. Hmm. Or they can just make you lose your Ethereum that you're paying for your gas fee. 
That's interesting. Different type of piracy, much less known. That actually links closely to stock markets after, you know, 20, uh, 2008. So, I, when was this? It was actually the Bank of, the, the Bank of Canada was trying to open an office in, in New York. And one of the uh, and one of their head uh, bankers noticed that if you if you looked at your ticker, your Bloomberg terminal, and you looked at the price of something, when you went to buy it, the second you went to buy it, it would actually it would, it would increase. <laughs> it's like airline tickets. Exactly. So like. <laughs> What it was, so if and, and he noticed if you did this with a bunch of a uh, bunch of computers at one time and you had them and you had them go, it would like it would bump the price for everyone instantaneously. So what he ended up doing is showing that if you, the closer you get to the uh, to the central location, where everything is traded, the computers actually have less time and the bots have less time to basically jump in front of you, to kind of push that price up. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I'll have to see if I can find it. But it was the book Flash Boys actually is is pretty much on that and the basis of that. So there's a there's a bunch of things there, but kind of actually going back to another interesting concept that we talked about before. That you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is a cost for everything, right? So you know, so you know how you go to the store and it's like eggs are you know always a buck fifty or whatever or around there maybe up or down. That actually comes from Quakers. So in the UK, um, I want to say it was like 17 or, you know, early 1800, something like that. A shopkeeper who was Quaker thought it was, un, it was unfair to give different people different prices religiously. So he literally put tags on everything. He invented the price tag huh. and, the, and the price that it was was going to be the same for everybody. Why is this important? This goes back to the inefficiencies you were talking about. Prior to this, you and I would barter essentially over everything, even when it was money, right? It, it was essentially going to, you know, like a bazaar. And, and, <laughs> and they show, yeah, exactly. And they show you, you know, they, they show you something, right? So cell phone, cup, glass, whatever, right? So let's choose like a, let's choose like a, a mug for now. I don't, that is the most innocuous thing I can think of. So, you know, you see this mug, it says, you know, like, I heart New York on it. And you go to pick it up, and the guy goes, for you, $20. You're like, no, this is $5. So then you would barter. When the price tag was put on it, so everybody got the same price, you don't have to have specialized people that are, that are good at bartering anymore, right? Now, their cost of labor is decreased because anybody can just bring it up. Interesting. So the, so a religious principle actually created efficiencies in the market. That's funny. Yeah. It's just, it's super interesting because now that's, and that's where we actually get the, like a lot of macro economics comes from this one individual. And, and the reason is because now you're actually able to say, oh, here's what a, you know, the price index of something, you're actually able to look up a price index before that wasn't possible because, you know, I might get eggs for 50 cents. You might get eggs for two bucks. That actually ties us back to our original topic yes. of Coinbase <laughs> and why it's so valuable. And even in the space of the full decentralized ecosystem that is crypto, how a centralized brokerage account is 
able to be so powerful, so valuable, and kind of not, I mean, they're not the most ubiquitous one. There are others out there, but they've made the most news lately. And the reason that people flock to them or utilize them, including me, right? I, I do use Coinbase to trade crypto because it's... At significant loss of risk, guys. I just want to make, I want to make that very clear. <laughs> um, yep, high risk, high reward. But the reason that you'll go to these centralized exchanges versus, a, say, a decentralized exchange is you're not at risk of that piracy. You're getting transparency to what the price you're going to pay is. You know what the market rate is, and you know that within very few pennies of that price, you're, as soon as your transaction gets pushed, you're going to get it at that price. Not some crazy price, not some ticked up price because someone, the bot jumped ahead of you and, and bid it up higher right before you were able to purchase it. You know what you get, what you get, and the fees that you pay through them are much lower. So they're, in essence, giving you some sense of security at the cost of your using a centralized brokerage instead of a decentralized platform that would then protect some of your private information. Yeah, that's that basis is sort of that like that good faith and credit that we were talking about when we were talking about like what a stock market is, period, right? Like if you if you don't have confidence that, you know, you are that this company is going to do well, you'd sell against it. And that's similar to here. It's just it's a albeit a slightly different form of that, but roughly the same. So as you may or may not notice, there are patterns in everything. Not always patterns where you think there are, but sometimes, but most of the time there is usually a pattern to things. Human beings operate on very specific patterns. One example that's always makes me go nuts is marathon times. It should be just like a, a, a smooth bell curve, right? It is not. Everybody comes in at five minute increments. Interesting. Because everybody paces themselves at, at minute marks. Huh. So people naturally will create essentially um, like these just discrete Step. times where they'll come in. Interesting. That's a cool one. It's also how you could do these technical analyses on stock charts or crypto charts because they really shouldn't exist. Yeah. It, once again, human nature always will sink itself in at, at, on some level. That's, that is why you can... There are bots out there that will trade based off of um, Twitter. Yep. The mood on Twitter using certain words, it'll say, "Okay, I see the prevalence of the of this at this moment is super low or super high." As a result, I'm going to trade or not, or you know, or buy or whatever these individual like indexes or you know price or prices or um, currency or commodities, um, or futures, com yeah, whatever. And they do really well. There's, there's a uh, one of the Nobel Prize winners in economics was a guy named Richard Thaler, uh, out of the University of Chicago. And so University of Chicago School is supply side economics. He actually went and got a PhD first in uh, psychology, and he created what's known as behavioral economics. So his famous book is Nudge, um, but he basically was able to show, look. You know, humans are not these rational actors. We are irrational actors. So as a result, we are more likely to, to operate in ways that are sort of self, 
inflicted wounds, if you will. So it's look at the human side, right? And it kind of goes back to what Warren Buffett always said about investing, which is if you know the company, if you use it every day, buy it. Yep. He also said, uh, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And it's funny when you watch cryptos because yes. cryptos in versus stocks, it's a, it is a bit different that it's a, it's almost a bit more pure because you don't have all these big fish market movers pumping, there are pumping numbers, but you don't have mega wallets full of money like the vanguards of the Black Rocks moving billions in one direction or another in a very short time span. And so you have a, it's a much bigger retail space, right? The little guys are all investing. And so you get more true sentiment of market status, market feel, market mood, however you want to call it, on how these cryptos move versus how stocks play out. Yeah. When you do get those big whale investors coming in that just go and liquidate $7 billion out of Bitcoin, people panic because nobody has $7 billion to liquidate into their Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, I don't know too many people who do, period. Right. I, I wish I did sometimes. <laughs> Hang out with them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that would be nice. I probably would buy a small island and get slightly more and more eccentric is what I would do. My goal, guys, is to get monocle rich. Like, I want to have just like a monocle and have and be like well off enough that people don't say anything. They just look at me and are like, fine, we'll take this. Wouldn't be much of a stretch for you to go as uh, the peanut guy. I'd love that. That'd be fantastic. For Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will get there one day, but not yet. But yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of kind of summing all this up. There is, there is market volatility. These things exist. A lot of it can be traced back to humans and sort of our um, lack of discretion at times or, you know, the fact that we, we do operate off of emotions. Think about the last time you saw a dip in the market and we're like, well, I'm going to liquidate everything. Like so many people do that. So once again, just if you feel an impulse, wait, wait, yeah. think what that impulse means and why are you thinking that? And then go from there. Because you know the guy who sold at $51,000 last night for Bitcoin thinking it's going to plummet was kicking themselves when not even five minutes later it was up 10% from there. Yeah. Right? Like they immediately gave up 10% of their money right off the bat and probably lost whatever they lost sitting from if they – that same person was probably the guy who bought at $65,000 two days ago and panicked. Yep. And that panic selling, you can actually see there's uh, – you can definitely see on the crypto charts last night, but – You'll typically see it with any stock that goes into panic selling mode and it accelerates down. And so yeah, as you're watching these charts move, it's a slow tick, slow tick, then starts to speed up, speeds up, and then literally goes parabolic or vertical. <laughs> One way or the other. So if it's panic selling, it's straight down. And when it's FOMO buying like it was three or four days ago, it's a straight line up. Bitcoin hadn't moved in the last couple months. Well, I shouldn't say that. Mm. <laughs> Last couple of weeks. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> it hasn't moved too much. And all of a sudden it was it just shot up from mid fifties into the um into the mid sixties. Yeah. Out of out of nowhere, right? Seemingly nowhere. Granted there was there was news about it, um, tied into the, the Coinbase IPO and a few other big pieces of news that kind of fed into it. But 
it's just, it's interesting to see because those behaviors drive that panic selling, that panic buying. And you can watch a very clear acceleration of buying or an acceleration of selling as people I, freak out one way or the other. Even just looking at nor- like quote unquote normal markets, one thing you can always look at is, um, I think it's Kramer, right? The Jim Kramer from, uh, you know, CNBC. Yeah, Men Money. Any stock that he mentions... If you, sh- if you were to short sell it, you would make a ton of money because it'll go through the roof initially and then there's a, there is a hangover where it drops dramatically. So it's interesting to just see sort of what market sentiment is, right? And like, just remember, we, we all live on a hedonic treadmill where we adapt to what's going on and then kind of work from there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of big market movers that if, if they say something, you'll see a very quick response to whatever it was uh if they say buy or sell you'll see an instantaneous reaction to it and then a quick correction back the other way because there's other types of things that happen in markets which is momentum um and regression to the mean so if you see something ballooning up or plummeting down the reason they say buy the dip or sell the high is because it's likely going to come back the other way and looking at how the euphoria state crypto was in a couple days ago um it was almost imminent, like it, ha- it almost had to happen, right? That there was going to be some level of correction, and then I think a lot of people did just panic and, and drive it a little bit further down before it starting to stabilize. Now, yeah, the laws of physics also apply here. So I feel like that's a yeah, it's probably a good spot to end it. Let's do it. So, as always, I'm Aaron Blumenthal. I'm Mike Cherney. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you in a couple weeks. See you then.